0: So, hello, and welcome back to our 59th show. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Yasser Abu-Jamr, a Palestinian clinical neuropsychiatrist living in Gaza, who trained in 2012 in Birmingham. He is a director of the Gaza Mental Health Programme, a leading mental health provider in Palestine. I'm also joined by Rana Speer, a Palestinian writer from Gaza. She is a published author of two books, my lover is a freedom fighter, and in Gaza, my identity. Her writings also appear in Mondeweiss, We Are Not Numbers, and other publications. She is also a mother of the three children. I am also honored to be of a 17-year-old Palestinian musician and writer from Gaza. Unfortunately, Mark Sedin, our usual host for Palestine Deep Dive, cannot be with us today. So I am filling in his place. I am Ahmed Al-Naouq, Director of We Are Not Numbers, and Advocacy and Outreach Officer of the EuroMed Human Rights Monitor. And I am speaking to you from London today. However, I grew up in Gaza, where our panelists join us from today. And I endured three of Israel's deadly aggressions. As always, we are keen to hear from you, so send us your questions and let us know where you are. Our live show today comes in a critical time for Gaza, As it just reached a truce with with Israel after bloody and violent Israeli aggression in the Strip, like many others, like many other wars on offensive, civilians in Gaza had to be the highest price, the highest price. More than 46 Palestinians, including 16 children, were brutally killed, and more than 250 injured. In this escalation, we have seen tragic images of children. Torn into pieces due to the constant Israeli bombardment. For example, in Jabalia Camp, Israel targeted a group of children, for killing five and injuring 30 others. And in Boraj, Israel killed a father and his three children. Here we have a selection of videos that will help you see what's life really on the ground in Gaza. Right now, there
1: is
2: sounds of bombs all over. We're at Raid's Rajab's house and girls are crying. The children are very scared.
1: The situation is very tense still. was full of
2: um, uh... We can hear bombs dropping, a panic in uh, Raid's Rajab's
1: house. They're reliving the trauma of yesterday. They were sitting at home. They were praying and then Bombs were dropping over them. Um, for the children, what breaks me the most are the children.
0: We know that these cottages can be distressing for some, but this is what life is in in Gaza, not only in Gaza, yesterday in the western city of Nablus. Israel forces shot dead and killed two 16 year old boys in the West Bank during this so called truce. Official Palestinian statistics say that the number of children killed by Israel since the start of the Second Intifada in 2000 to this year has risen to over 2,230, with over a thousand of them killed in the last five, five wars because. But of course, today we are not focusing simply on the numbers of children killed or injured, but rather on the lasting impact on the children's mental health in Gaza due to these Israeli continuous aggressions and ongoing 15 year blockade. I wonder if I can begin with, you, with asking you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Yasser, about uh, a about review of, of the children's mental health in Gaza. Even before this aggression, not only in this aggression, before this aggression, Save the Children organization issued a report uh, in this year saying that 80 percent of Gaza children now suffer from depression. This is to say that almost 1 million Palestinian children suffer from from depression, sadness, and symptoms of severe mental health problems. Dr. Yasser, this is a very, very big percentage, maybe one of the highest uh, in the world. But is this figure accurate? I mean, How many children are there in Gaza today? What percentage do they make up of the population? And how can these children really suffer? Or do children really suffer to this extent in Gaza?
3: Well, thank you for uh, uh, raising this uh, very uh, important questions. And uh, let me begin by thanking the organizers for the opportunity to shed light on how the current conditions impact the lives of children and the population in Gaza Strip. To begin with, uh, according to the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics, 47% of the population in Gaza Strip are children. Uh, If you speak about 2.2 million people, inhabitants in Gaza Strip, we speak about about 1 million people who are really children uh, of the living people in Gaza. the question about the impact, uh, let me uh, b- get back to the uh, point that you raised when you spoke about the Save the Children report, and I think that always the most important, uh, 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 let me say, finding that the report speak about, in my opinion, is that uh, the feeling of safety among the children, because when you speak about 15 years of blockade, when you speak about decades of occupation, when you speak about uh, four, now five, big offensives on Gaza Strip since the year 2008. Uh, I think the biggest question is, do you feel really safe when you live in Gaza Strip? The One of the key findings is that 90% of the children living in Gaza Strip, they don't feel or they feel less safe when they are away from their parents, you know. Uh, the figure was 60% of 2018, and now it became 90%, which was a few months just before the, the recent attacks. Uh, Emotional distress is 80%, as you mentioned, and on top of that is depression. On the other hand, if we look at the caregivers or at the parents who are the backbone or the cornerstone when it comes to offering support to children, we see another staggering, really, uh, figure, which is that 96% of the parents report feeling unhappy and constantly anxious. And if you look into what could be the possibility or the, the reason for that anxiety, or for being unhappy you find that two-thirds 63 percent of caregivers feel that they are not useful or they are not able to overcome the difficulties and why is that uh, two main reasons one is that parents are not really capable of offering safety and security in times of attacks you know uh, because we don't have shelters we don't have means of feeling safe and secure and the other point when you speak about 53% or more than 50% of the population live under poverty line, then you speak about the difficulties that parents face in just providing simple needs of their children, children who go to schools. Uh, 53%, that means more than 500 children, 500,000 children live, live under, in, in families living under poverty line. Can those parents really offer uh, uh, good uh, uh, stationary, for example, Uh, good uh, clothing for their children's clothing, uh, schooling, etc, etc. So, uh, in GCMHP, we we made uh, a research in uh, 2021, about five or six months after the uh, May 2021 uh, attacks. One of the findings was not really far from the findings of the Save the Children report. About 83% of the children uh, had anxiety issues, you know. 78.7 uh, percent of children had uh, uh, problems with attention. 74.5 uh, percent of children had uh, symptoms of depression. You know, 71.7 percent has sleep problems. So you hear about a mixture of really symptoms that are related to the ongoing chronicity of the difficulties: depression, anxiety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you have some other children who resemble some kind of. Uh, 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 trauma related issues like sleeping problems like problems with with attention with concentration etc cetera, etc cetera. so these were the conditions of the children prior to the last uh, uh, few days uh, attacks so you can imagine how these uh, uh, symptoms were uh, uh, or have exacerbated uh, sometimes people question the uh, notion of 80% that is the highest yes it's the highest in the world i am really not that pessimistic that uh, uh, we had so many. uh, I mean, the the percentage is such a high one. But let's go back to 2014, when the UNICEF said that about 370,000 children or one third of the children living in Gaza Strip, they are in need for some psychological intervention. That figure really continued to be there. I think in 2018, we were talking about one fourth or one in four children is is in need for some psychological intervention. Uh, but, of course, the, the needs uh, increase and continue to be uh, uh, high. Let's keep in mind that it's not only that, that we talk about symptoms. We do not talk about, uh, let me say, uh, disorders. You know, uh, th- that's disorders is a different issue. You need to have a clinical setting in order to make the psychological assessment, the full assessment of the children in order to reach a diagnosis. Uh, so even if we are not talking about disabled children or a disabling disease, we are continuing to speak about the suffering of those uh, children and the families uh, who host the children. Again, during the last three or four attacks—sorry, uh, three uh, uh, days or four days when we had the recent attacks—again, the figures show that again about one fourth of the casualties are really children, whether those who were uh, killed or uh, or injured. About one third to one fourth—that is the continuing. Uh, continuing uh, staggering figure: more than 120 children, I think, were injured. More than uh, 15 children were um, uh, killed. Many of those children were, like you know, cousins. They were members of the same family. Some of them uh, passed away with their got killed with their one of their parents. So uh, the 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 uh, g- overall issue is that uh, 15 years of blocking for example. Uh, and child who is now 18-year-old or 17 year old was exposed to three to four large-scale operations. Between those operations, you do not really have a period or a time of safety. As of now, for example, uh, the ceasefire is there. But actually, the drones are still in the sky. The uh, threat that is still ongoing, we see what happens in West Bank yesterday, what happened in Nablus, for example. So it's it's all something that doesn't really bring a feeling safety and security it's something that keeps reminding people of the traumatic event and keeps natural uh, healing processes you know on hold make our intervention on working with the children with the victims also uh, a difficult one
0: speaking about your intervention dr dr yasser we know given all these uh, figures that you have mentioned these are staggering uh, figures can you tell us a little bit about the Gaza Mental Health Community Program and how you are dealing with, with with these with these children who are like more than a million Palestinian children need mental health uh, assistance. And what functions does it carry out, uh, your organization, and what are the major challenges you face in, in the Gaza Mental Health Program?
3: Well, clearly, on, on one hand, um, there isn't any, uh, I think, health system or mental health system in any country that will be able to deal with such, uh, let me say, uh, uh, challenging uh, conditions with these challenging impact or expected psychological impact of what happens in Gaza on you know, the population. Uh, and this is uh, not uh, even not uh, with the beginning of the blockade. You know. We were established in the year 1990 by our late renowned psych- uh, psychiatrist and human rights activist, uh, Dr. Yadis Sarraj. He started the idea in in the late 80s during the first intifada when he noticed. And then there was only one place to offer mental health services, which was the psychiatric hospital. So he was seeing so many uh, uh, parents, so many children who were suffering from the Impact of the Israeli aggression during the first Intifada, which is somehow in in ways similar to what happens now in the West Bank. You know, night raids. You know, arresting parents in front of their children. Sometimes beating up parents. Sometimes you know harassing children, taking them into detention, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was clear that there, there isn't really the the psychiatric hospital isn't the best place to deal with those issues. So he started the first ever in in, in Gaza Strip a mental health community mental health center. Which is composed of a a multidisciplinary team the medical personnel is important a physician or psychiatrist but also there is a need for a psychologist for a social worker and the nurse the idea was a combination of a biopsychosocial model rather than just the strictly medical uh, uh, model so we have multidisciplinary teams nowadays we have three community centers we operate also through five community-based organizations where we send our staff to operate from there in order to make our services accessible and available to to, uh, marginalized uh, neighborhoods and uh, areas. The idea is to offer comprehensive mental health service. When it comes to children, for example, we offer play therapy, we offer art therapy, uh, psychodrama for the children. And on top of all of this, we involve parents in our intervention. We We stay with the children maybe a couple of hours per week, a couple of sessions per week, maybe less, maybe more. But at the end of the day, the involvement of parents is really critical and really of vast importance. So it's a, a sort of combination of uh, uh, a therapy plus the involvement of parents. And then in order to make our service more reachable, more accessible, we operate also through uh, schools. We work from kindergartens. We work with, with sport clubs uh, because all the time the work at the level of primary prevention is really very important. And it's better not to wait until the symptoms really deteriorate and the children become incapable, incapable, incapable of doing their uh, uh, daily routine life and become really severely uh, symptomatic and, and sick and then come to our community centers. Let's also, one one more word, which is the stigma is, is really still in the, in, the, in the society. Stigma, by the way, part of mental health services everywhere in the world, but it's really more in, in, in our region. A lot of people would would really talk about the traumatic events, how they are coping with it. it. They would speak during the morning houses, you know, they will talk about what happened. But when it comes to someone who is like a child or a woman or a young girl who is symptomatic, who is having nightmares, who is having bedwetting, you know, they would really think twice before reaching out to a mental health therapist. That's why we try to operate from their communities, from the places that they are available, like a sport club, like a school or a kindergarten
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Yasser. And uh, I would love to emphasize on uh, a point that you have mentioned, that this is actually not the fifth war in Gaza. Since uh, the year 2003, Israel launched more than 29 aggressions and wars, uh, military aggressions against the Palestinians in Gaza. So it's like a vicious circuit that never ends. Aggressions, then truce, then aggressions, uh, truce, and then uh, aggressions. And the Palestinians never had rest or peace of mind. So now, thank you very much, Dr. Yasser. Now let's move to Hant. Hant, you are only 17 years old, and yet you managed to make this through. You have lived a, a, a 15-year-old siege in Gaza. This is your entire life. Above that, you've experienced five wars at least and many aggressions. And we have a, a title this show as Gaza is a children's Prison. Do you think this is a fair title? Just based on your experience.
2: Um, first, I'd like to thank you for hosting us, all of us today. Um, I just wanna highlight one thing when it comes to like maybe naming wars and aggressions. War is something or a word that I would try and avoid using because it usually indicates that both sides have equal powers. While it's not the same in our case, I'd like to call them more of like aggressions uh regarding your question uh the title of this life today gaza is a children's present uh it is a title that uh really like indicates the the open-air present that we've been living in as you just said for 15 years like almost my whole life uh maybe it's like not a physical one we can go out and it's not like a natural present but living under siege yeah it is a considered a children's present especially for those who were like Born after 2007 so they really did not get the chance to experience anything before that uh but to also like kind of look at the bright side of all of that is that even though it's called a present even though uh there are many things that we're not allowed to do like traveling uh like maybe try to study abroad go on vacation um even to like Kind of get a treatment for something it's very hard for Gazans and specifically Gazan children to get out of gaza but um if we look at the bright side these people like are doing their best these children these youth are doing their best in order to try and make connections uh, online or via social media platforms to actually make sure that this present is not preventing them from achieving their dreams although it's going to be harder for them to kind of conduct all of that virtually but they're doing their best as i said i always love to Emphasize that positive side of us living in an open air present. Um We're doing our best in here. As I said, we don't have a lot of opportunities, but on the other side, we're we're trying to create those opportunities out of all the rubble that we've been living in, like for more than fifteen years.
0: Well, it's it's very lovely hint to um, to hear your positive vibes here. Um, I'm very happy to hear that you're coping with that. Can you tell us hint? Uh, about your life, uh, how was it like during the past week in Gaza? And how it, it compares to what you have experienced in the past?
2: Um, well, the past like three days when the aggression happened were really tragic for me. Uh, it got me a lot of flashbacks of those aggressions that we've lived before. I only got back to Gaza like less than two weeks ago, so I didn't even get the chance to like adapt to everything and readapt to where I am. So just things like going like literally with no time, everything is going one after the other. I did not get the chance to reflect on anything. And in addition to that, it got me thinking a lot about where I'm actually living, the present that I'm actually in, Uh, me knowing that I might die like literally any second while I'm talking to anyone while I'm sitting, while I'm watching TV, while I'm thinking about something, because this is what happened with the other children and the, the other causes that were killed during this aggression and during the previous aggressions as well. So I got me like, as I said, like the, the older I am, the more I'm thinking about um, these things. Uh, maybe like when I was younger, I used to be scared of all these things that are happening around me. Right now, um, like while I'm growing up, I'm trying to actually make a move and use that voice that I have for those voiceless people that do not get the chance to talk that much about their feelings. So this is like something um, I've been doing like since the 2021 aggression that happened uh, last like last year. Um, So this is like my goal for now is just to keep moving and just to actually be the voice for those who cannot talk that much.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's actually lovely to hear that you are uh, setting yourself a goal and th- that you want to speak for uh, those who uh, can't express themselves uh, well in the news. Uh, thank you very much. Rana, Rana uh, thank you so much for waiting so patiently. Uh, during the past or the, the latest aggression in Gaza, I have been in contact with my family and friends in Gaza, and many of them are parents. And I have noticed an unprecedented frustration among mothers, an unimaginable fear, not only for themselves, but also for their children. One of my friends whom I met in in London a few years ago, and she returned to Gaza, told me that her biggest regret is that she returned to Gaza now because she can't bear a life for her two-year-old child enduring Israel's attack. I can only imagine that. It is indeed not an easy job to be a mother, let alone being a mother in Gaza. Rana, can you please tell us what is it like raising your children in Gaza, and how have you managed to cope with this past week?
1: Yes. uh, Well, thank you for having me on this show. Um, well, you know, every woman's dream is to be a mother. And when you think, you know, you have this romantic idea of having your babies and raising them so peacefully and watching them grow up and all of that. But um, when, when my kids were babies, um, there was rounds of sonic booms and aerial shelling and um, uh, so much. Uh, there were still there were milita- military attacks um, on uh, Gaza and i i always just try to reassure myself that by by the time they grew up that all of this would just you know go away and it couldn't um possibly last for years but here they are they are um Hinn's age now they're 17 and they have witnessed every aggression and we have uh a, a, as a mother i've tried to deal with um with uh, during every aggression with them um according to their age So I remember when they were uh, very young, um, they would ask so many questions. uh, And I tried to um, avoid answering some of their questions and I tried to protect them from seeing, you know, images on TV. But you know, the environment that our children live in is is uncensored, meaning wherever they go, they will see pictures of martyrs. They um, will hear people talking, even adults in their own house. Um, So, i watched my children grow up and absorb all this war terminology and the images and living the you know living through all these attacks and um uh, it has been a very testing time for me and for mothers here uh because uh, you want your child to grow up uh with a healthy mental well-being and um uh but this, uh, this isn't easy to um, achieve here amongst this um, uh, very uh, precarious uh, life conditions here. So, uh, for example, if you uh, want me to talk about the last attack, well, it was uh, only three days, but um, compared to other attacks, I guess because my children are teenagers now, um, it wasn't about panic. It was more about, you know, uh devastation and frustration at this vicious cycle of on and off attacks and uh i can't tell you how much this disrupts our lives so um even when they're at school sometimes attacks would happen when they're at school and then i would just run um you know to pick them up and this happened in 2008 when the first uh uh, attack was launched suddenly and um, kids were at school. And it was actually the time of the day when the two shifts of school switched. So the morning shift was going home and the afternoon shift was going to school. And it happened during that time and where, while kids were in the street. Uh, so the, the, there's no discrimination as we have seen between kids or women or adults. And um, this has led to so many emotional problems for my kids, for other kids like the doctor uh, Dr. Yasser has uh, mentioned and um, as a parent I've tried to deal with these uh, problems in my own way so um, maybe I can talk about this if you if you yeah.
0: want to learn about that. Rana, I, I would like to ask you a very important question in this regard. During each aggression, have you noticed any emotional change in your children and have they recovered even from the, the last war in Gaza in May 2021 uh, and after any attack uh, by Israel against the Palestinians in Gaza?
1: Yeah, so the May 2021 attack was a very ugly and vicious one because it was in my neighborhood. I um, I live in a Riman neighborhood and the um, street where the, the, let's say, the, the, the onslaught happened and the massacre where over 42 people were killed. Um, so this was like after uh, 1, uh, 1 a.m and suddenly we heard this uh very uh, uh we heard about like this very loud shelling and uh, these blasts and um we we were uh instantly uh we had packed you know and every aggression parents and children they pack they each have a backpack where they put just their essentials so they can just be ready to to run if there's an attack nearby so this is what we did we ran out of our uh, we ran down out of our building and all the nearby buildings also ran out in the street because they were, I guess, everybody thought that their building was being attacked. And so we just, we were running in the streets and I was looking at people running in the streets. I mean, people were going in different directions. Um, I don't think they really knew where they were going. Uh, it was like a, it was like a, an akba all over again. And um, uh, I heard people screaming, ask, uh, screaming for help uh, as we were um, running in the streets. And this was very traumatic for all of us. Uh, and the next morning, I don't think we were ever the same again after that attack, because it was very close to us. Uh, but what I have tried to do is that, um, to uh, talk to my children about what happened. It's very important that they get the chance to express their feelings. Uh, my daughters, for example, they like to paint, they like to draw a lot, and they're always buying, um, you know, colors and paper and stuff like that. They also, um, I encourage them to do any, you know, um, recreational activities like uh, uh, horseback riding. They love to do this. I mean, anything that would get their minds off of what's going on, because uh, at one point after the 2014 aggression, when they were just nine years old, it was a very hard time for me. Uh, one of my daughters, one of my daughters, was constantly um, uh, panicked, and she was uh, always having nightmares and crying and um she was always imagining that we're gonna die <laughs> and you know we're just waiting for death because they saw they, they saw people um who they knew uh getting killed and one of in the last aggression one of my daughter's friends who was in their school um got killed and uh, i don't think my daughters ever really got over her because they uh they one of them tells me that she always sees her in her dreams and. Um, uh, and it's very hard for them to just grasp the concept, you know, of the notion of death and all of that. They've had to. Um, I mean, all children here in Gaza, they're very heroic, let's say, because they're they have grown above, and they have grown um, above their age and have been forced to uh, absorb things that children in other parts of the world know nothing about. So, ask any child here; they'll tell you what kind of plane is hovering above, whether it's a uh, It's a drone or an F-16. They know all of these, this war terminology. But as parents, we try to, you know, find, I guess, the the right ways to um, to deal with our child children's trauma. And um, I also urge parents and myself to seek professional help, like Doctor Yasser said, because in some cases, uh, these aggressions have a very long-term effect on the children.
0: I'm I'm very sorry to hear your children had uh, to go through all of this, Rana. But what about you as a mother? I know every mother worries a lot about her children. But how does it feel to be a mother in Gaza? Is it worrying constant? Do you ever get a rest?
1: Uh, no, there's no break. Actually, Israelis don't give us a break here. But um, I just want to emphasize that when aggressions are over, you know, when these attacks finish, we're still living a smaller kind of aggression, which is the siege. Because this blockade, like Hint said, has taken up their whole um, 17-year-old has only lived um, under a blockade. And this is also a very traumatic experience where children feel entrapment, you know. As a mother, I, I already feel that I'm trapped on this tiny piece of land where I'm banned from moving, banned from traveling. Um, I mean, even sometimes, you know, I have these fanciful dreams about attending a writer's conference somewhere. I mean, that's something normal for people outside. Or sometimes I just want to buy a book off Amazon. I want it delivered to me. And that never happens. Um, so that the sense of entrapment here for kids is also very hard because... Um, during during um, their uh, uh, elementary uh, school years they learn they have a subject called national studies where they study about palestinian cities in 1948 palestine and in the west bank and they they have never seen these cities i mean just imagine anybody from the outside world can come and visit my country but my kids can't go and visit their own country and this has caused a lot of confusion for them so uh A very famous story written in one of my books is that when my two daughters were um, arguing one day, so one of them said, we live in in Gaza, and the other said, no, we live in Palestine. So one of them comes to me and said, Mom, do we live in Gaza or Palestine? I mean, I was about to just, um, I really held my tears because I'm like, here are my kids learning things at school, but they don't know anything about their country because they're not allowed to visit it, and it's only a few miles away, these Palestinian cities. Um, so, uh, and I went to one of the teachers one day, and I told her, "Can you please show them some, like, documentary films about Palestine?" And she was like, "No, we just—they have the textbook, the pictures in the textbook, which are very dull, and they, you know, they—they they just memorize it." Um, so this sense of entrapment, where they know nothing about their country, they're not—they can—they can—they can't travel. They don't have the luxury of traveling and seeing other places around the world. Um, I think it's a very suffocating feeling, and that's why it leads to. I have found that it led, it, it has led to uh, children, sixteen, as young as sixteen years old, falling into depression, because they see other um, children like them who have um, graduated, let's say, from school or college, and they have. They, ha- they haven't found any jobs and they can't travel so they picture themselves and like this is my future this is what's gonna happen to me so why should I study why should I care about finishing school if I'm just gonna be an em- unemployed uh, uh, in the future so uh, as parents we're just always trying to motivate them and I keep telling them it's not gonna ha- it's not things are gonna change inshallah and uh, I believe that faith in our community plays a very large role for many families. About having, you know, strong faith um, in God, and that strong faith in our cause, and that we can, um, we can change this, but we just have to be patient. And yeah, I, I think it's a day-to-day um, challenge, but we're we have no other choice.
0: Thank you, Rana. You know, um, it's not only confusing for children to know if they are from Palestine or in Gaza, because it's also for us as adults. I'm 28 years old and the first time I ever met a Palestinian from the West Bank or from Palestine 48 was in the UK here in London three years ago. So I never had the chance to meet with anyone from the the Palestinians in the West Bank and I always when I would meet someone from the West Bank I would seize the chance to ask them about Palestine, to ask them about the Palestinian cities in the West Bank because we have never been there. We have never been there. It would be even more funnier when, when I meet with with the British people and Americans who have been to Palestine so many times. And I am a Palestinian. I am denied from going to the West Bank or Jerusalem or Palestine for 48. Well, thank you very much, Rana. I will get back to you, Dr. Yasser. Uh, but before before that, I would like to remind the, the uh, our audience that in 1991, Israel ratified the UN's uh, Convention uh, on the Rights of a Child, which stipulates that all children have the fundamental rights to life, survival, development, protection from violence and an education that enables them to fulfill their potential. But clearly, Israel violates this convention day after day, year after year, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. Um, We know, for instance, that in, in Israel itself, Palestinian or Arab schools often receive almost six times less funding Bear child than schools for Jewish students, as they are ineligible for funding from Zionist the institutions. They go on to face discrimination in job markets and also subject to Israel's 65, 65 racist laws. In addition, over 5 million Palestinian refugees must rely on the UNRWA for aid, living in the West Bank, in Gaza, and Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, with over 1 million children requiring humanitarian assistance. In the west bank israel's apartheid subjects palestinian children to discriminatory laws and practices they are routinely denied the right to education when forced to wait in uh, at checkpoints their classes can be disrupted by israeli military at any time and according to the defense for um, children international in palestine each year approximately 500 to 700 palestinian children some of them as young as a 12 years old are detained and prosecuted in Israeli military court system. This is common charge. The common charge against them is stone throwing. So, Dr. Yasser, we often we often hear that about the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. That it doesn't really apply properly for Palestinians in Gaza as the trauma is continuous. It's not ending. Is that true?
3: This is a a very important question, and it all the time brings uh, a very nice discussion among mental health professionals, especially my colleagues, uh, whether in in, in Gaza or West Bank or Palestine 48. Uh, Again, as I said a little bit earlier, we don't have that uh, traditional, uh, let me say, uh, condition that you live in peace, your life is... uh, a lovely one, Uh, you are enjoying growing up, enjoying work, and suddenly a traumatic event happens that, you know, make your life difficult for a couple of days or you feel the threat uh, to be injured yourself or people around you. And then there is uh, an end to that uh, uh, disaster, whether natural or human made. And then uh, help and support comes in from everywhere, you know. And then your main uh, task is to get back to real, uh, how to say, to to, to normal uh, life. Well, those three things are not happening in Gaza. First, the uh, uh, pre-traumatic event is not uh, an easy, uh, smooth-going life, etc., etc. No, we speak of uh, blockade, we speak of occupation, We speak of uh, more than two-thirds of the population in Gaza Strip are refugees themselves, you know. So we speak about decades, you know. This doesn't go only to 67, but it goes also to to 48. And then, not only that, but you live under a blockade. Not only that, but within that blockade, you are exposed to, we say, for large-scale operations, but as you said, at least 29. And despite that, you hear all the time the queues things that remind you of the traumatic events, you know, that are happening around you. You know, you listen to the news, you see how things are on the heat, you know, you see, uh, you look at the skies, you continuously to hear the loud sounds of the drones and they all bring you the bad uh, uh, memories. So, uh, and then in the aftermath or in the after the disaster, then there isn't really return to normal life. It's again, life as uh, usual under occupation, under the drones, under the blockade, etc., etc. So the uh, traditional uh, Western notion of post-traumatic stress disorder, I wouldn't say it doesn't apply to to uh, a place like Gaza Strip. But I would say that uh, the uh, uh, situation in Gaza Strip is is deeper than that. You know, we cannot really make it uh, uh, just describe it as a PTSD as as uh, in its simple notion. No. It's it's far beyond that uh, that, and then on the other hand, you know, uh, PTSD uh, is a disabling disorder. You know, uh, but in order to be able, for example, to say that this person is, is disabled, you have to have something that you are doing or working in the first place in order to stop doing it, and then you become disabled. When we speak about 50 percent, 53 percent of the population unemployed, you know, then it's really becoming a challenge. You know. To, to show what does this ability uh, uh, mean. And then when you look, for example, at children, uh, the first day after, for example, the May 2021 attacks, which were, I think, the most severe devastating attacks that happened among the five different attacks. You know, um, uh, at the end of the, uh, I mean, the first few days after the uh, ceasefire, the Ministry of Education uh, announced that uh, and in the announced and into the academic uh, year, you know. Uh, of course, it was COVID, you know, it, it came on top of COVID, uh, uh, not the pandemic, but in, on top of uh, a COVID wave, you know, that, that was in, in early April uh, and then May 2021. And guess what happened, you know? So children had to go to pick their, what we call certificates, you know, that they end that year. And guess what happened, you know? They were all very well-dressed, you know. And why they were very well-dressed? Because they were putting on the Eid clothes, you know. The uh, 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 end of Ramadan feast was within the uh, uh, attacks time. So the children haven't had the chance to wear those clothes, you know. Parents have bought them. You know, they they were capable of buying. They, They already bought them. But there was no chance because we didn't have the Eid celebration because we were under attacks. But they put those clothes on when it was time to to go to get the certificate, you know. So it was a very ironic combination. You drive your car or you walk the street, you see in one hand the debris and the destruction and the destroyed houses. And in the other hand, you see very well-dressed children who are moving across those debris you know trying to go to the uh, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, schools and get their, cert- their certificates and come back uh, home. So uh, can we speak that and say that those children um, are traumatized? It's a big question. It's a lot more than that. How do they feel when they are reminded of the trauma? Of course it's it's deep pain, it's a lot of uh, uh, things that would go into their minds. When they go to sleep what happens? When they wake, wake up in the morning, are they waiting their beds or not? You know, there are many things that happen in the background. But still, I think there is a very strong will in the Palestinian people to challenge the living conditions and to live, you know, to go on with their lives. Not only uh, uh, that we live under occupation that is no, we are challenging the current uh, 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 challenges and we want to go on with our lives we want to invest in our children future as parents you know we want the best education for them and we try to push them all the time to perform well at schools you know and they uh, respond uh, to that they are very happy when they when they get high marks and they try to their best to get their grade, uh, to, to get high marks so uh, ptsd as a term mm-hmm. yes i apply it in my uh, in my community center in my work We put that diagnosis, we use the DSM-5 categorical diagnosis, but it's not enough really to describe what happens to the population in a place like Palestine.
0: Yeah, Uh, and I also agree with you that the Palestinian people have the strongest and the stamina and determination. It's really unparalleled, I haven't seen it anywhere in the world. And that's something that's really inspiring uh, for all of us. So back to Save the Children report. Uh, It said that more than half of Gaza's children thought about suicide and that three out of five of self-harm. I mean, this is so alarming. Dr. Yasser, what do you think is the international community's duty regarding these alarming reports? Do we have enough support to mitigate these circumstances? I mean, Gaza children in need of help. Can you tell us what kind of help are we seeking?
3: Look, Ahmed, you know, uh, in one hand, uh, those children and we adults, we parents and we mental health professionals have our good days and bad days, have our ups and downs, you know. You cannot be a child who is exposed for the third time in your life that you really understand what happens around you or maybe fourth time and you see how much worries are there, how much difficult uh, things are, and you just go on with your life without having... uh, Some wounds, you know, there are psychological wounds that we have in our minds, in our psyche that come to the service every now and then, although we do not have a diagnosis, you know, but this is part of the suffering. So that's why we we might see those uh, uh, alarming figures. That's one issue. The other issue, we speak about an occupation, we speak about aggressions, we speak about offensives. That among are among perhaps the mostly documented events that happen internationally, you know, in the globe for the last seven or eight decades, you know. It's very well documented what happens. It's very well very well documented the aggressions, it's very, very, very well documented the implications, you know. It's not only through media agencies, it's now through social media, everyone can report what happens, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What is needed is uh, a reaction from the international community, a reaction that is up to the challenge, that is up to the question. Why the international community is silenced until now for an occupation that continues to happen for decades? Why it's silence until now for all the killings of the children, Palestinian children? And then I'll tell you one thing, we, our children, Palestinian children, we have the same right as all the children in any other place in the world, you know. All the human rights declarations, says the first one in 1948, going with the child uh, the declarations, the human rights declarations, and all the various declarations. You know, uh, by the way, the state of Palestine have signed most of those de- declarations in the year 2015. But we have our rights that, they, like, we are not a second, let me say, a level citizens on on this globe. You know, we we have the right our children have the right to grow up in a safe place, in a secure place, to go to a good education. We as Palestinians believe that we have enough resources perhaps not to live as a rich country, but to live as a, a good country, you know. It's yeah. it's enough to, to I mean we, we have the resources, we have the capacity, we have the human, uh, let me say, manpower, which is the most important thing. We have the intellectuals. I think we are the most uh, uh, the most educated uh, people in the in the in the Middle East, you know, but we need the chance, and in order to get the chance, we need to just live in a dignified way, we need to live in peace, and we need to enjoy our freedom, and we are not requesting anything more than our rights, and the international community should respond. In a dignified manner, you know, the, the question mark is not to Palestinian people, but the question mark is that is to the silence of the international community, you know, while in some other places we see how much the international community is responding, you know, and let's not draw parallels, but everyone knows what I'm talking about.
0: Yes, that's that's very eloquently what Dr. Uh, yes sir. thank you uh, thank you very much and that's actually because the question that came to us uh, in the comments from gary from gary in scotland and he said how can how can it be that children are not even eligible to vote in an election are the primary victims of a politically masterminded humanitarian nightmare why does the world sit in silence and what can we do to make more noise about it i think rana you you can answer this question Rana can you are you there We can't hear you Rana
1: sorry, I didn't hear your question could you repeat yeah, yeah.
0: So Gary from Scotland uh, asks how can it be that children who are not even eligible to vote in an election are the primary victims of the uh, of a politically mind humanitarian nightmare why does the world sit in silence and what can we do to make more noise about it
1: well why are they the um the targets of the israeli occupation warplanes because the because the occupation has a very sick mentality um, that they want um for example in the last attack uh to prepare for his election campaign the interim prime minister is um trying to boost his election campaign so i guess the more blood he has on his hands the more chance he has in winning and that's the only explanation i have because it has happened over and over when um uh politicians want to make some um i guess development in their uh, political um life that's what they do they just attack innocent civilians and they do this and they do this um with uh because they know they've never been held accountable for it I mean, the world watches, the international community watches, uh, children getting killed. And um, as you've mentioned, children getting arrested, children as young as 12 years old. And um, uh, they just, uh, Israel keeps getting away uh, with this, with these crimes. And um, I guess what ordinary people can do is that I believe in the power of popular uh, resistance and popular um Movements, uh, they should uh, do what they can to protest to uh, protest against um, the, the, the the this bloodbath that keeps happening, and they should also uh, call for um, disarming uh, uh, the Israeli occupation to stop sending arms. I mean, British and America, uh, how much they, do they send every if year you're, if you're in money or in weapons to? Uh, The Israeli occupation so they can test these weapons on us. their are lab rats here in in Gaza and then um, uh, Without being held accountable, they test these internationally banned weapons on us Every with every attack and every attack we hear a new kind of um, bomb or weapon being used on us so uh, there should be um, high-level protests to Uh, Disarm and stop uh, sending these weapons uh, to Israel. And for Americans, their tax money, um, their tax money goes to the Israeli um, army also. So I think these massive civil uh, movements are very important. They should um, try to keep momentum. And it's not going to happen. Change is not going to happen very fast. It might take years. But I think that every step counts and um it's a it's a very long um, road but i think we've been we've been patient here um for 74 years and so i think that um they should also um just not give up
0: thank you thank you um rana so we have lots of questions in the comments section in our show unfortunately we can't take all of them but we have a a question here from deborah in newcastle and she asks you hand what dreams do young palestinians in gaza have or has israeli crushed those two
2: um thank you so much for this question Ibora. um palestinian children and specifically palestinian children in gaza have a lot of dreams that vary from like whatever careers you you can ever think of uh, some things or some majors or field, fields of study are available to study here in Gaza, while a lot of them are not. Um, maybe if I want to talk about my dream of becoming a biomedical engineer uh, and probably like, be more involved in the like genetics and genomic field, this is something that is very, very hard to do um, as a Palestinian living in Gaza because of the lack of resources that are needed for you to study um, this major here in college. Uh, In addition to the other children that have a lot of dreams of becoming uh, doctors, dentists, uh, maybe just something that they've seen, journalists, um, book authors, and many other things as well, Um, I'd like to say that Israel hasn't crushed them like uh in the same like way or literally but uh the things that happen with us the the obstacles that we face when we want to travel or we wanna actually start and achieve our dreams uh this is something like israel have been working on preventing us or preventing us from having this basic right of achieving our dreams while on the other hand i'd like to say that there is always at least one good thing behind every tragedy that we live and those tragedies those aggressions that we survived. um they like motivated us in some way or another to actually be that change that we wish to see in the world to be that change that other children can easily achieve or other people can easily get while on the other hand, we can't. So we want to create that change instead of waiting for someone else to create it. So I just want to say that Gazan children or their dreams, they literally have no limits, no matter how like small is the present that we live in, or no matter how long we stay in this present, they literally have no limits.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Hint, uh, for saying that. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, but I, I want to ask you, Dr. Yasser, one last question. Uh, in, in, in a previous show uh, for Palestine Deep Dive, we hosted Dr. Bahzad al-Akhras, a friend of mine, and he's a specialist in a child mental health in the Gaza program for mental health, and you're his boss, of course. And he said something that is that I can't really forget, and it's very hard to hear He said that Gaza children are not living, they're surviving. So to what extent do you think, uh, do you agree with him? And what does it mean that they are not living, they are surviving?
3: You know, uh, to live means that uh, uh, life is something that you enjoy. And a big part of what you really enjoy is achievement, you know. And it's, by the way, part of the... uh, 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 definition of uh, mental health, you know, well-being, you know, which means that you are capable of achieving something, but also coping with the challenges, but also feeling that you are very well, you know, psychologically or mentally. So uh, children, uh, what are their tasks? I mean, they are supposed to have fun. They are supposed to play. They are supposed to grow up in a very healthy environment to eat well yeah, and to enjoy being a child, you know, okay? And your whole discussions, your whole talks will be about, you know, what happened at the school, you know, uh, uh, what marks that you received, and then what you dream to become in the future. That's life for the children. Now, in in Gaza, first of all, uh, children used to play during the first and second intifada in the streets, the game that we call Arab Yahud, which is... Arabs and Jews, which is basically resembling the Israeli soldiers who are running behind the uh, uh, children who are throwing stones, you know, or their parents, you know, who are just running from here to there, you know, which is a mimicking or a play uh, that resembles the, their dairy uh, life. If you bring a child now in Gaza to our community center, you know, and you take them into the play room, play therapy room, the play therapy room is full of toys, you know. Whatever you could come uh, it, it could come to your mind. For example, animal structures, for example, a house structures, you know, a toys that resemble parents, you know, but they would go and try to play with tanks with uh, uh, those uh, uh, things that resemble what happens to them and they will start to tell their story. This is of course part of healing, part of therapy. But, but again, that's what the children uh, live. That's what the children see. And when they grow up to become adolescents, then they see that their elderly, for example, elder uh, siblings, for example, or their parents, unemployed, they don't have a chance to to, to live a dignified life. Uh, They are under brocade, they see all the difficulties. So that's why it's not the normal living condition for a child to grow grow, uh, in. So what kind of life is that, you know? Uh, I'm sure when when I as a father, you know, travel abroad, I I just look at the children of of other places and I wonder why my children are not living the same happy life, you know? Why they all the time have to worry? Why every week or two they will will hear some bombardment, you know, and then they will think again what's going to happen tomorrow? So that's why they uh, survive. They continue to live. They challenge the reality. They perform well at schools despite all of those uh, realities. They challenge the concept of PTSD, you know. They go on with their life. They are true heroes and true survivors, you know. So that's why their challenges is to survive and they are doing their best. And our biggest, biggest I think, as parents' duty today towards uh, our children is just to help them go on with their lives or to help them basically survive, you know. So that's how... How I could explain what Bazzad uh, uh, uh,
0: said. That's very well explained. Thank you so much. I think we lost hand. Uh, I I noticed that she lost power in Gaza and then she lost connection. So uh, hopefully she will join us soon. Um, but uh, unfortunately we have exceeded our time limit. In one minute or two minutes, uh, I, I would love to ask each of our dear speakers to leave a message to the world. So. What what is it that you want to tell the world uh, as a concluding message, Dr. Yasser? Uh,
3: I would say uh, you know live for your uh, uh, you know uh, moral issues. You know, uh, stay on the right side uh, of history. Uh, call for justice for Palestinians. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Rana.
1: Yes, well, so, uh, I echo Dr. Yasser as well, and I urge uh, people listening and uh, people uh, out there to uh, listen to our stories because our stories um, are not mentioned in mainstream media. You have to look for them. Uh, maybe your um, uh, this uh, this broadcasting that you have here is one of. Um, the ones that uh, tell the stories of the Palestinians as well as, as other uh, media um, outlets. Um, so uh, please listen to our stories. Um, don't listen to the twisted facts or the Israeli narrative. Uh, we, as, as a mother, um, I want my children to live in peace. I just want them to play safely, to, um, to wake up to the sound of birds, not bombs, and to just have an ordinary uh, life like children in other parts of the world.
0: Thank you very much, Shauna. And uh, we lost you for a, min- for a moment, and I think you lost power or uh, Wi-Fi, but anyway, um, as we are um, exceeding our, uh, our time limit, I was asking our dear speakers to give a concluding message to the world, to people who are hearing us today. So what would you like to say?
2: Um, I just want to like encourage people to do their research regarding our Palestinian cause. As Rana has just mentioned, that our stories are not like uh, mainly mentioned in on mainstream media. So try and do your research. Don't let just mainstream media brainwash you, and try like uh asking questions ask us questions ask other palestinians that you know questions about where they live what like difficulties they face or obstacles that they encounter during their kind of like day to day routine and i'm pretty sure that after doing all that research you're only going to find one right and true side to this story which is ours so just keep that in mind and try to spread awareness about our cause it's not that known in the the western world on MS Western media uh, but being or having a lot of voices talking about one thing at the same time this is what's gonna get us to many people outside there so thank you
0: thank you very very much hint and thank you Dr Yasser thank you very much Rana I enjoyed talking to you, and all of your points were very uh, informative and illuminating. So, this is it from us today. Thank you uh, very much, all of our guests, and thank you, Palestine Deep Dive team behind the scenes, who have made all this possible. Until the next time, thank you for watching. Thank you very much.